The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we continue in our series through this letter. We're in chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll be considering verses 11 through 18 this evening. Ephesians chapter 2. And beginning in verse 11, this is the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. That's for the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help as we consider that word together. Let's pray. How thankful we are, Lord God, that, that in the spirit we come boldly because we have access to you and we can seek your blessing even as we receive your word again this evening. Come to us, we pray, Lord God. Guide us once again by your spirit unto these precious gospel truths. Would you open up our eyes afresh that we might behold the grace and the glory of our glorious Savior and that we might follow him afresh in true repentance and faith and true obedience. Hear us and bless us. Build us up in the knowledge of him, O Lord God. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have seen that this is a letter in which the Apostle Paul works really hard to show us that our salvation is in no way the result of our good works. This is a gospel of grace. This is, this is all of God's gift. We've seen that it was planned by God before time. It was accomplished all by the work of Christ in time. And then we saw last time that, that, that even its application to us is all the, all God's work. We have nothing to boast in because it was all God's doing. We saw that it's certainly true with respect to our justification, that work by which our sins are forgiven and we are counted righteous uh, by grace through faith in Christ 
alone, and, and even, even that act of believing faith, that was God's doing. And all of the works in our, in, in our conversion, everything that, that was what has happened in, in bringing us to faith, all of that was God's doing. And we saw last time that, that even the good works that we perform as believers, every good thing you will ever, you have ever done or ever do will, will do, dear Christian, is all of the Lord. I guess one way we can say it is that the call to, to walk in those good works is a continual reminder that salvation is the gift that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. Well, as we think about all of the gifts that God gives us, all of the blessings that he pours out upon us as he works out his great salvation in our lives, I want us to think about uh, those gifts. Think, I want you to think about a particular gift or gifts that should come to mind as we think about those things, but perhaps doesn't, don't always come to mind as quickly as they ought to. And that's the gift of each other. Look around uh, the room this evening, the sanctuary, your brothers and sisters. What a blessing we are. What a gift we are. We might think about that person this evening whom we're not quite so readily inclined to think of as a gift from the Lord, maybe someone we don't always get along so well with and think of that person as a someone that God has brought into our life to work out his saving purposes in our lives. Gifts to each other. I think that Paul was wanting the, the church in Ephesus to remember that and the particular each other relationship that he had in mind in Ephesus was the Jew-Gentile each other relationship. We, we don't know of any particular great problems that were going on in terms of uh, the, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, but we do know that that was a big problem in much of the early church. It wasn't easy for these two very different groups, so different culturally, different uh, ethnically and religiously, to come together and live as one people, and Paul was uh, urging them to, to be able to do that, but, and it's a major theme in this letter. We see it in this chapter, chapter 2. We see it again in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He wanted the church to, to understand their call to live out their unity in Christ. Well, to do that, they needed to understand the truth, which is before us in our text this evening. Our message this evening is this, that the grace of Christ unites Jews and Gentiles as one people. So we unpack that message before us this evening. We have three points. The first is, is, is that the Jews, or sorry, the Gentiles were separate from God and his people. But secondly, the de- that the death of Christ had, had served to bring them near. And then thirdly, then the result was that Jews and Gentiles were made to be one new race in Christ Jesus. So that's what's before us this evening. Consider then that first point, brothers and sisters, how the Gentiles were once separate from God and his people. To say separate from God is really, and, and his people is really putting it kind of mildly in terms of everything that, that Paul wrote or writes about them. Really, what he writes about all of us uh, in our lost condition. This is a, 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 a letter in which we've seen where Paul really doesn't mince words in his description of what we are by nature apart from God's grace in Christ. We recall that this chapter began with about as powerful a description of our human depravity as anything we have in all of the Bible. 
Paul reminded us we were you were you were dead in your sins. You were children of wrath. You were following the evil one, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. You did nothing but live for evil passions and carry out the desires of the flesh and on and on. Well, this evening in our text, he, he really continues to describe that human lostness, particularly as it pertains to that or was reflected in what was the status of the Gentiles, those who were not part of Israel. We see that he addresses them in particular. He says, he writes, you Gentiles, as we see it in verse 11 there. Why does he address the Gentiles in particular? Well, many believe that the church in Ephesus was a predominantly Gentile congregation. So in addressing the Gentiles, perhaps he was addressing most of the church. And yet we know, on the other hand, that that there were plenty of Jews in Ephesus. We know that when Paul went to Ephesus and preached the gospel, where did he start? As was his pattern, he preached first in the synagogue. And, And we know that though Many ended up not believing and actually ended up maligning the the Christians and refusing to believe in their stubborn stubbornness. Yet we know that many did believe. And so we know that there were Jews and Gentiles both present in the church in Ephesus, hence Paul's call for unity among these two groups. And again, we don't know of any particular great hostility that existed between them and the church in Ephesus. But because Paul did see that that problem in developing in the church, generally speaking, certainly we can assume this evening that his, his words here were uh, intended in part to safeguard against such problem, if not you know, need, needed for to already remedy a, a problem that was was existing, but I think clearly uh, these these words were intended to be heard not only by the Gentiles, but Paul is assuming there, of course, the Jews are there listening as well. You know, uh, as parents, when we sometimes get involved in conflict between our children, if you're like me, you might at times be addressing one child, maybe the one that was particularly at fault in this particular incident, but you'll speak words that are calculated also to bring words of instruction and maybe in correct, uh, correction to another child or the other children as well. And I think in some ways that's what we see going on in Paul's words here. Think about verse 11, where he says, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Certainly those words would have served as a rebuke to Jews, certainly to unbelieving, Christ-opposing Jews, those who would have looked down upon the, the, the Christian or the Gentile Christians and referred to them as the uncircumcision. For Paul to refer to such Jews as what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Certainly that was, that was an indictment against those who were putting confidence in the flesh, those who were proud of their circumcision, but who knew, who uh, knew nothing of the true circumcision, the circumcision by the spirit of Christ, the circumcision of the heart. And perhaps even in the church, perhaps even for the believing Jews, the Christian Jews, there was a temptation to adopt that kind of mindset, you know, to, to view their their, uh, their, their Gentile brothers and sisters disparagingly. And so these words certainly would have uh, served as something as a rebuke, something of a rebuke for them 
as well. But perhaps the Gentile believers then were were tempted to respond in kind with ungodly attitudes themselves towards their Jewish brothers and sisters, perhaps even uh, ungodly thoughts and even ungodly words, right? You, you Jews, you're the circumcision. You're the ones who are putting confidence in the flesh. At any rate, uh, rate no doubt we see that these words were, me- uh, were intended to bring a measure of, of humility to the Gentile believers. And Paul brings them that humility by reminding them of what they were. There was a time, he writes, when you were not included among Israel. You were not among God's people. Notice that he, he uh, or even those words, Gentiles in the flesh, those might be intended as sort of a, a double whammy indictment of the Gentile believers. Paul might be meaning to say here, you were, you were really in the flesh in two ways. That is, physically, you carried around in your flesh your uncircumcision, but more importantly, you were just exactly what that represents spiritually. You were uncircumcised in heart. You had not been born of the Spirit. You are in your flesh, not yet born of the Spirit of Christ. But then you notice in verse 12 that he, he really packs a lot into, in, in, uh, in describing their lostness all in one verse. We note five things that are mentioned. He mentions first, you were, you were separated from Christ. He mentioned separately, separately, uh, secondly, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Alienated from Israel. We might imagine a, a wall, you know, bigger than, bigger than any wall we could ever even dream of having down on the southern border. Bigger than the, the wall, the great wall of China separating the Gentiles from God, from Israel. Paul was saying there's a wall of separation and you were on the outside of that wall alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He mentions 30. Thirdly, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. And he says, you had no hope. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. This really uh, does remind us of that unique and privileged status which Israel did enjoy as the one nation which God chose and with whom he he, uh, chose to enter into covenant. It calls to mind Paul's description of the Jews, the Israelites we read about in in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 9, where he mentions all of those special blessings which, which God chose to give to them as a nation. Obviously, we're not living in the same days as, uh, you know, the ancient church in Ephesus or the church in Rome. Here we are living today some 2,000 years removed from the time when the old covenant was in effect. But it's good for us as well to think on these things, to appreciate what God chose to do specifically for them. He had no obligation to do it for anyone, and he chose not to do it for the Gentiles. I'm presuming that that all of us are Gentiles here uh, this evening. But to think about the special blessings he gave to the Jews. He, we're told he gave them his oracles. He proclaimed his word to them. He adopted them. Israel is my firstborn son. To them, he revealed his glory. 
He gave them the covenants. He gave them the law. He gave them the holy worship. He gave them the promises. He gave them the patriarchs. They were the blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's the greatest blessing of all that came from them? We're told in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, from their race according to the flesh, that is, uh, at least in terms of his earthly origin, from them came the Christ. It's good for us to think about this. Uh, Even today, I have no idea how many of you have very much interaction with ethnic or religious Jews, but but it's a good good for us to have an appreciation for them as a people as we think about their their ancestry, the history of their nation. I think one application we could make is if you are ever having opportunity to interact to interact with a Jew and have an opportunity to 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 speak of your faith, you can say it this way: I'm thankful for your people, for your nation. Uh, I feel indebted to you in the sense that God used your nation to bring to the world, to bring to me the Messiah. We can, we can say that certainly praying for their salvation, those who don't know Christ, but certainly we should never have any kind of a, a haughty attitude and any kind of arrogance over the fact that we know the Messiah and they've rejected him. We should not take for granted what we now have, and it helps us not to do that as we meditate deeply upon these words, as we think about what we were as those who were separate from God and his people. And I suppose the very best way we can think deeply about that and remember that as we think about what it took for God to undo and to change that status, which was ours. And that brings us to our second point this evening. These Ephesian Gentiles had been separate from God and his people, but the death of Christ had served to bring them near the death of Christ, the cross. Look at verse 13. How is it possible for those who were far off to be brought near? It took blood, the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ, Paul writes, we're brought near. Verse 14. How is it possible for those who were the objects of God's hostility to be brought near and to be made to be at peace with God and his people? The dividing wall of hostility had to be broken down in his flesh. This is that, that dividing wall, right? We're not, we're not talking about the Great Wall of China. We're talking about that, that wall in the temple which separated the outer court where the Gentiles were permitted to go from the inner court where they were forbidden to enter. In fact, on that wall, we're told that there was, there was even an inscription written warning the Gentiles, you only have your own, you only have yourselves to blame for the death, for your death, if you transgress and you enter into the inner courts. We, we, we praise God this evening that we no longer live under that threat of death because Jesus died in our place. How marvelous. How marvelous to think that it was as he, Christ, was treated with the the most unimaginable hostility, his flesh broken, his body crucified, that, that he was breaking down the wall, the dividing wall of hostility, to the end that we can come near. We see in verse 15 that the death of Christ served to, we're told, abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What exactly does that, that mean? 
One commentator, Dr. Baugh, I think explains this well. He points out that Paul here was probably thinking particularly of those commandments which kept Jews and Gentiles separate. So the, the, the separation laws, the laws on purity and on separation. Remember that when God gave the, the promised land to his people, he wanted to keep that land and keep his people holy and pure. And that's why the whole unholy, unclean Canaanites needed to be driven out of the land. Dr. Barr writes, these particular commandments were tied to Israel's theocracy and were part of the typological purity legislation that led God to command Israel to exterminate the Canaanites from the Holy Land in preliminary judgment. We remember well what, what happened uh, to the Canaanites in the land as Israel went in in the conquest under Joshua. God had, had given those nations over to their sin until they were ripe for judgment. And then God commanded his people to go in and engage in, in holy warfare against them, even, even devote them to destruction. Talk about hostility. Talk about hostilities of war. Well, that was indeed, brothers and sisters, that was a, a preliminary judgment. That was a type of the final judgment, the judgment which, which you and I deserve and certainly would have faced were it not for God's grace to us in Christ. And that is what makes the cross so wonderful, so precious to us this evening. And we stop and think about all that Jesus was willing to endure so that we could be at peace with our God. Verse 16 tells us that in order for the hostility to be killed, the Son of God had to be killed, killed in our place. The cross, how wonderful, how precious, albeit horrendous and gruesome. You know, if we're ever troubled by what we see in the Old Testament when we read about Israel going in and, and devoting to destruction and wiping out the Canaanites, if you're ever troubled by what you read there, always remember that was nothing compared to what Jesus had to endure for us. And this was the innocent one. This was the righteous and holy and pure Son of God. I think we do well to, to think about the sufferings of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, in terms of what we learn in our text here. You know, Jesus was not a Gentile. Jesus was an Israelite. He had a, a rightful claim to all of those blessings which we just mentioned, the privileges enjoyed by the covenant people, every bit as much as they did, no more than they did, because they, they enjoyed those as blessings which they did not deserve. But Jesus, he was, he was worthy to receive all of those blessings, not only by virtue of his uh, human birthright, but by virtue of who he was, his status as eternal God, God, the Son. This is the one who did not simply receive God's word. This is the one who was God's word, the word incarnate. This is the one who was not simply adopted as an Israelite. This was eternal God, the Son, the Son of God. This is the one who was the true glory. This is the one who gave the covenant. This is the one who himself was given as a covenant to the peoples. This is the one who had, had given the law and had given the worship. This is the one who, who had spoken to the patriarchs. In fact, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and he was rejoiced. He rejoiced and was glad. This is the Messiah. 
This is the God-man, the Christ. And indeed, even even as true man, he was the one true, faithful Israelite. He was the only one who ever perfectly lived according to that blessed status. He's the one who lived out all that was required in the covenant, and he's the one who then should have received all of the blessings of the covenant poured out upon him for his enjoyment forever and ever. Instead, what happened? We can describe his suffering and sufferings in terms of Jesus knows fully well what it's like to live with that lowly status under which the Gentiles suffered, right? Jesus, Jesus understands what it's like to be regarded as the, the unclean one, the uncircumcised one. He's the one who himself was, was cut off from God and from his people. That's amazing, isn't it? To think that the one who from all eternity was one with the Father, and yet he had to be made one who was without God in this world. There was no no hope for him, we can even say, no hope of escaping that eternal separation, the, the equivalent of the suffering of hell, which you and I deserved. Jesus suffered all that for us when he went to the cross. Jesus suffered the full curses of the covenant in our place. Well, to what end? What was the result of all that Jesus did? Our last point, to the end that Jews and Gentiles might be brought together and made to be one new race in him. One new race, one new human race. Just think about what happened when Jesus died. And when Jesus died, for all who belonged to him, we understand that 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 marked the end of the world, that marked the end of the old humanity for us, the end of this world where where humanity is divided by Jew-Gentile separation and, and everything else that divides us in this world. It's interesting, isn't it, as I was reflecting upon this, thinking about this modern world in which we now find ourselves living with all of the amazing advances in, you know, science and medicine. I suppose the, the modern mindset is to think that we can so improve, we can so perfect humankind, we can, we can eradicate sickness, we can solve all of our problems, we can get rid of every evil, solve all of our problems, we can progress to the place where we will be essentially a new race? Well, here's a question we might ask ourselves. Can we get rid of divisions in this world? Because I'm noticing something, at least I'm noticing it in our own country. The more we seem to quote unquote progress, the more we seem to be divided so terribly. And I suppose the, the secular progressive will say, would say, well, that's because of those who are on the wrong side of the fence, right? We need to convince them to, to be like us or we need to get rid of them. So much for, for unity in this world, right? Brothers and sisters, this evening we can rejoice in the wonderful truth, this hope that when Christ was crucified and when he, he rose from the dead, he was the firstborn of a new world, a new creation. He was the first of a new race, and it's a new race, a new world in which God's people will be perfectly one all those who belong to Christ. Think about that this evening. Think about that within the body of, of Christ. Think about that new 
new world where we will dwell together in peace and unity, the two individuals, even the, the two who are the, who are the most divided, right? The two most unimaginably polarized individuals in this world will be able to say, he has made us both one. Marvelous. Marvelous. Yet, of course, as we look at our text this evening, we, we see that the truly great work of reconciliation is not that at the horizontal dimension. It's not me and my, my Jewish neighbor. It's the vertical dimension. It's me and my God. He has made us to be one. So you look at our text again, verse 16. Who is it, according to Paul, that, that needed reconciled to God? He writes, both, both. And why is that? Why did Jesus die? That he might reconcile us both to God. Paul is not only writing about the Gentiles and their dire spiritual need here. The Jews are listening in, right? He's writing about the Jews as well. The truth is that that, that verse 12 description, that, that hopeless estate in which the Gentiles had once found themselves, that's true of the Jews as well by nature, right? That's a, that's a description of the entire fallen race of Adam. But just think then about the implications this should have had. Not only the Jews, but the Gentiles are, are brought together and in Christ made to be heirs of all of the blessings. There's not uh, two separate futures for God's people. No, there's one people of God united in Christ, one people receiving all of the blessings that God has promised. Well, what's the greatest blessing at all? To be one with God and to be one with each other. Just think then about the implications that should have had indeed for the, 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 the unity, the peace that should have existed, the love that should have existed, which Paul will call to, uh, to, to be pursued among the believers in the body of Christ. I suppose we might imagine a, that, that, that Jewish believer in Ephesus, maybe the one who, who struggled the most to accept the, the, the Gentile believers as one, right? I find it difficult, really impossible to be truly unified with these people. And for that matter, you might feel that way in your own life about a person, right? You might think of that person. I, I know I should go to this person. I know that I should live out my unity with this person. I know I should be reconciled to this person in ways that I haven't been. But, oh, it just feels impossible. No, no, the, the, the truly impossible thing is that you, who were God's enemy, a child of wrath, one who lived out your days in hateful rebellion against him, he came to you in Christ. And through the work of Christ, you were reconciled to him. Your God, who was your enemy, has been reconciled to you, but not you to your God alone, you together with your brother or with your sister. He has bid you both come Come, he has welcomed you both into a kingdom, into a world where you will have full and free access to him together. How marvelous, how wonderful. If it seems all just too good to be true, it's not too good to be true. And the amazing thing is it's already begun. 
It's begun in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the gift of the Spirit. Already we have access to God in the Spirit. Already we are, we are made to possess that new creation which has begun in him. Together, not you alone. Notice in verse, Paul writes in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Brothers and sisters, that ought to encourage us by the Spirit to live, yes, in love, in unity, in peace, together as God's people now. And in one of uh, John Newton's famous writings, one that greatly encouraged me years ago, you, you might not believe this, but missionaries who go and serve the Lord together on the foreign mission field, sometimes they don't get to get, get along all that well. And at a time when we were struggling with some some disunity, I remember my brother, Alfred Carrico, sharing these words from John Newton. And, and, and these were written uh, with the idea of bringing correction to a brother or sister who is in error, uh, the one whom, who uh, Newton refers to as an opponent in controversy. But I think these are such wonderful words that would help us as we think about the brother or sister with whom we struggle the most to get along and have unity in Christ. Here's what Newton wrote. He wrote, in a little while, you will meet in heaven. He, your opponent, he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Appreciate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are happy to be in Christ forever. Those wonderful words. Surely that, that, that's how we ought to feel towards every brother and sister with whom Christ has been pleased to, to unite us as he has welcomed us to him and welcomed us to one another as we together are in the presence of our God forever and ever. Let that affect the way we esteem and welcome our brothers and sisters. Let us receive each other's as the precious gifts that we are, gifts that God has given us in, in, in connection with all of his blessings of our great salvation. As we view each other that way, as we so welcome one another and treat each other accordingly, we will indeed enjoy the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving, praising God for his precious gift, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, how we pray this evening that you would help us to do just that, how we bless you and praise you for your great indescribable grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, that that we who were far off have been brought near. Thank you that you have made us to be heirs of all of the promises, all of your covenant promises to your people. And Father, in accordance with your grace, we pray that you would come to us this evening and take your word and by your spirit, fill us with it, cause it to dwell in us, Lord God as you've brought us near to yourself, help us to live, yes, in true fellowship with you, and yes, in true love and fellowship with one another, which will be pleasing to you. Lord, hear us and bless us and be glorified then in us, your people. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.